there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. Professional baseball players began what would become a 50-day strike, their third since the formation of the major leagues. Steely Dan pulled the plug as a band, and Donald Fagan and Walter Becker went their separate ways. The AIDS epidemic officially began with reports of pneumonia affecting five gay patients in Los Angeles, according to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control. And finally, Barbara Walters unforgettably asked Katherine Hepburn, What kind of a tree are you? Oh, I like that everybody would like to be an oak tree. That's very strong and very pretty. So how did we ever find time for all of the movies that came out in June of 1981? Hi, everybody. I'm Drew McQueenie, and welcome to another episode of 80s All Over. I'm joined, as always, by my illustrious co-host, Scott Weinberg. What's up, sir? Hi. How is everybody out there uh, in 80s All Over land? Thank you for listening. Uh, we should probably remind our listeners who aren't uh, subscribers that our Patre- Patreon, got it, okay, uh, <laughs> our Patreon account, we have the uh, the Fog audio commentary we have interviews with uh, nancy allen and amanda wiss a true funny story so i go to meet with the casting director wally nasita um at warner brothers and that in the script they describe my character phoebe as like i forget the words they use but it's in my head i had it that they described her as a model or something like that so I, you know, only a 23-year-old would have this sort of ignorance, but I, I walk in and I went, I went, you know what, let's just save us both time. I'm never going to get this movie. I'm not a supermodel. So I just wanted to meet you and tell you how much I like the script, but I'm not going to waste your time. And she just looks at me and she goes, okay, this is what's going to happen. You're going to stop talking. <laughs> you're going to get up, you're going to leave my office, you're going to stand outside my door, and you're going to knock, and when I say you come back in, you're going to come back in, and we're going to start over, and you're going to read the damn script. (laughs) So if you are interested, check out our Patreon page, and uh, and poke around and see if that interests you. And if not, you can just join us on the freebie episodes and have a ball. I am so excited about the the next uh, commentary recorded. It's a Popeye commentary, and it is a full two hours of Scott and I, uh, filmmakers who grew up influenced by the movie, behind-the-scenes stories that I'm guessing you've never heard before. Uh, it is truly my favorite thing we've done so far, and I think we may top it today because the lineup is 
unbelievable this month. Last month, we had a lot of the B titles and then the A titles. This episode is so backloaded with big titles that let's just jump right into it, Drew. Why don't you explain how common re-releases used to be? Reissues were big business back then, and it was because there was, you know, cable had started by this point, but it was in a very uh, limited amount of the country. And in terms of how many homes had cable or VHS versus how many homes were still just the three networks in UHF, there was no comparison. People had not gone home video crazy yet. 1981... It was still basically theatrical was the big game. And then they'd show stuff on TV, cut up and rearranged and stuff. And so if you really loved a movie, that theatrical re-release was your chance to actually see the real film. Like, for example, the double feature we're about to talk about. These are Disney films. They already had the prints. What overhead do they have to re-release Herbie Goes to Monte Carlo and Herbie Goes Bananas? They were a perfect answer for uh, parents. I think a lot of times when you have two Disney movies in an afternoon, oh, my God, that's got to be heavy because, you know, you have the kid kind of out of commission for three plus hours. (laughs) Should we drop the other shoe? Uh, Yeah. As most of our listeners will probably know, this franchise began in 1968 with The Love Bug and continued in 74 with Herbie Rides Again. Herbie Goes to Monte Carlo was 77 and Herbie Goes Bananas just came out. Just a year earlier. Well, this is after they kind of shifted the focus because the series was originally all focused on the uh, the Dean Jones character. And then gradually they kind of once they lost Dean Jones, they had to shift away from him and figure out how to keep it going, keep some human connection, which is always the joke in these movies. It's like the Jaws series. The idea that the Brody family is in any way the star of that series is fucking ridiculous. The star of that series is giant sharks eating people. That's when you get the three and four. That's what you care about. All you cared about was Herbie and what Herbie did. And that was what was fun about them. You need Herbie and you need somebody to cut to with bug eyes who goes, wow, whenever Herbie does something. June is is what they used to be considered the beginning of the summer movie season. So now you're looking at June, which we'll soon get to, has a ton of what looked like blockbuster movies and would prove to be blockbuster movies. But now you have Disney going, okay, uh, in June, we're going to re-release a double feature of two Herbie movies and we're going to re-release Freaky Friday. And you know what my theory is, Drew? I honestly believe they put these back into theaters for simple spillover. You know what I mean? Like if the big, big release was going to be sold out, the parents would look at what's left because I'm telling you, Drew, how often did that happen to us as kids? I would say at least one out of every 10 times my dad and my mom and dad would take us to see a movie on a Friday or Saturday night and it was a big, big movie. It would sell out. Maybe even one out of five. It was very common. Yeah, you had a lot fewer prints. You didn't have it. You didn't have it every 50 feet. You could go see the same film. You'd be lucky if you had three places in the same city that had something. And that's if you had a big city. Yeah, it just seems like these re-releases were like, hey, maybe we don't have any major releases this month. So put up some of our popular stuff. And when blank sells out. We'll make a couple dollars. <laughs> you also got to remember, and this is one of the great things about us doing the podcast on this era. We're going to be talking about Disney at a point where they were just broken as a company because the real Walt Disney was dead. They had no one person who was kind of in charge of what Disney meant at that point. And so you did. You had a lot of re-releases because they knew that that stuff worked. You had a lot of reliance on formula and very, very cheap stuff. All of their live action stuff during this era looks like TV. They struggled desperately. This was, you know, before Katzenberg and Eisner moved over from Paramount. And we'll talk about kind of what led to that later in this episode. But, you know, those guys were the ones that eventually got the studio back up on its feet. This era, it is limping along. It is wounded. And it has no idea what it's doing. And I find that 
really interesting because it's Disney, the single biggest brand on the planet now. Yeah. All right. From Disney, we go to horror crap. Uh, (laughs) One of the things that I've enjoyed about revisiting 1981 is being forced to watch some horror films that I've always been really curious about, but they're just super obscure. And and, and bottom line is go look up, Google the poster (laughs) for a film called Demonoid messenger of death. Created by Satan to prey on the living. It feeds on your most hidden desires and secret fears. It's been dormant for centuries. But now, its time has come again. Demonoid, messenger of death. A warning for those who believe. Eternal damnation for those who don't. Demonoid, messenger of death. All I know is that Demonoid poster from all the years of looking at the video cover. And in a way... I kind of love that that's it. That's all I have is that poster and the imagined movie attached to it, which cannot be the movie that they made. For astute horror geeks, and I know you're out there, no matter how much I say something is either disappointing or just plain bad, a ton of you are going to go watch it. And I love that. I never want to dissuade somebody from watching a movie they want. Demonoid is atrocious. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it is. The poster makes it look like it's like some kind of occult monster epic that takes place in the deepest darkest bowels of hell and nope it's just like a mexican remake of the hand oh my that's basically what it is really yeah that is not at all (laughs) killer hands from the (laughs) that is not that poster at all uh from the director of the bees um (laughs) stuart whitman and samantha egger and it is about a a demon that uh infects people's left hand and people are just running from a killer hand the whole movie. I mean, and, and occasionally other people's hands get infected. You watch this movie, and then I looked at the poster again, and I realized that <laughs> under the demon, on the demon's podium, right there above the title, is a dismembered hand. I had never seen it! <laughs> I had well, never seen it! Uh, Scott, you unfortunately, this, what you just said came true, because there's no way I'm not watching that movie now. Now, let's see if gently... We can handle people's interest in the next film, which is another of these horror films that I grew up looking at the poster for and had seen a million times and then finally got around to watching. And that is Final Exam. At Lanier College, they have the finest security, the best teacher-student relations, no fraternity hazing, strictly enforced curfews, and a killer. He's come back. Final exam. When are you going to realize that the whole world isn't made of psychopaths? Some may pass the test. God help the rest. Final exam. He's come back. All right, by this point, everybody had already seen Halloween, of course, from 78 and Friday the 13th, and probably six or seven of the knockoffs. And it is astonishing not only how many there were, but how quickly they started falling out of the woodwork. Uh, Final Exam is a very basic shot uh, slasher film shot in a college in North Carolina, very dry, very 
poor acting. It's dull. It's just another dull, dull semi-murder mystery movie. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's just kind of a nothing of a movie. I can't even get angry at it. That's the thing. I can't get angry at a movie like this. You watch it and you're like, eh, eh whatever. If you were to say, draw uh, draw me up the most bland treatment or or storyboard of what a slasher movie looks like. Without any personality, without any color, without any energy, just show me a template of what a slasher movie would be. That's kind of what Final Exam is. It looks like a bland blueprint of a slasher movie. Here's the thing. As a kid growing up in the 80s who wanted to make horror films and who had other friends who were interested in horror and horror films, Final Exam to me is every script I read where it was some guy's first slasher film that he wrote. It ticks every box, and that's exactly the problem. When you were a kid, did you have uh, what were known as book swap? stores yeah the paperback places yeah you'd bring uh, in like six old paperbacks and they'd give you three that were new to you or four my favorite version of that was my dad was a pipe collector and so we would go to a, a tobacco store where there was a tobacconists in the front and then the back half of the store was a used uh, paperback bookstore like you're talking about so every book you took home smelled like pipe tobacco oh it's the greatest you know what they say tobacconist up front use bookstore in the back <laughs> what the fuck does that haircut look like well all right I probably had 20 or maybe as many as 40 novelizations. I even had some novelizations. I had novelizations for like stuff like Iger Sanction or like the China Syndrome. And I had this novelization. There was a novelization of Final Exam. It's just as generic as the movie. The cover is just a, <laughs> a, a, a silhouette of a man holding a knife looking at a college building. And I read the book and I thought... This is really very dull. I'm like, there's nothing to it. And, you know, when you're 13 or 14, you, you like pretty much everything you read. You see, I saw it probably in my 20s, and I think I fell asleep. Later in the episode, I already in my notes included it. We're going to talk about a novelization I had. It's hilarious because novelization culture is kind of one of those things that I don't know there's any real equivalent to it right now. I'm the same way. I would read any novelization for any movie I did not care what it was. I was if it was based on it, give it to me. I'll read it. That's fine. And, and dude, we could probably do a bonus episode on just things that we found out from the novel that we couldn't have found out. There's stuff like I know deleted scenes that I've never seen because those scenes were in the novelization. I think it's even weirder when you know about the deleted scene that didn't make the final movie because it was in the print that they showed to Mad Magazine that they used when they made the parody. We have gone down a real rabbit hole. And and, and if we're going to talk about Mad Magazine film parodies and novelizations, we have to at least throw in a quick mention for those photo novelizations i've got the popeye one sitting here on the desk right now i want it i had the one for greece i bet you had that one i had the fucking ice castles photo novel you kids are lucky today anything you want from a movie that you love if you want a guardians of the galaxy soup dish you know where to get it (laughs) as when we were young it was a handful of toys and like novelizations comic book adaptations were big in fact I have a distinct memory from this month, from June of 1981, of sitting by the pool in my neighborhood, and my reading material for the day was the oversized magazine, comic book adaptations for, for your eyes only, and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Honestly, one of the best days of my whole life. Oh, did you have that amazing 1941 comic adaptation? I did. I did. My uh, grandmother threw it away because it had tits in it. Yeah, it was really kind of not for kids, but it was great. Uh, and... Uh, the Bernie Wrights and Creep Show. Oh, uh, we're gonna we're gonna geek out when we get to Creep Show. I I love that so much. All right, all right, let's move on. We got an Italian horror movie called <laughs> Screamers. Screamers. 
bombers are coming. Their men turned inside out. Their lungs blow up and burst. Their brains expand and their bodies implode. And the worst thing of all is they're still alive. Screamers, they'll turn you inside out. Screamers. Rated R. I, I'm fascinated by this subgenre of horror, which is films that were purchased for American release, recut and reworked, and with new shit like grafted onto them. Screamers, aka Island of the Fishmen. Let's just call it Island of the Fishmen because A, it's a better title, and B, Screamers is another film that we'll get to later. Uh, this was a 1979 movie. This took forever to make it to America. Sergio Martino directed the original film, and horror fans will know him from the director of Mountain of the Cannibal God and The Great Alligator. Much of Act One with Mel Farrar and Cameron Mitchell was newly shot for a new release, U.S. release by New World. And they infamously shot a trailer in which they claim that the movie shows a man turning inside out and it wasn't in the film, and that caused some small degree of controversy around the film. It's basically... Joseph Cotton in a really chintzy remake of Dr. Moreau, I suppose. Yeah, it's Dr. Moreau-ish. Dr. Moreau, Black Lagoon, and a little bit of Lovecraft. You've got the dartboard covered there. That's the stuff they're pulling from. And, you know, and I kind of think the the Sergio Martino version, it, it feels like, you know, an Italian answer to the Hammer films, and it's kind of atmospheric, and it's got its stylization. This is bad, but this is infinitely more entertaining than Final Exam. For example, yeah, yeah, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's made with a certain amount of technical accomplishment. I know that the uh, the remake stuff or the the American stuff was directed by Miller Drake and Jim Wynorski, and Wynorski is the guy that cut the trailer that caused all the uh, controversy because they had to mimic Martino's style here. I think honestly, this might be the most technically accomplished film Wynorski ever touched as a director in any capacity. The edit for this, the American edit, I love that the American edit of this was cut by Joe Dante because that's one of the things he did so well for Corman was as an editor. Like, make stuff look great and cut trailers that were totally misleading. And I think he was masterful at that. And I think it's one of those film nerd things that makes me love Joe Dante even more was the notion that he would get a movie like this and look at it and go, all right, okay, we got to cut these two scenes. Uh, That's got to go. If we do this, then act one's a lot shorter. He had such a great sense of how to soup these things up to as much of a degree as he could. I really love that about him. Next up, we have a, what is this, a nautical adventure? What do you got? I look at a movie like this like a warm bath. You can just soak in it. This one in particular, I was not terribly familiar with, but if nothing else, I am now officially a huge fan of the score for the Sea Wolves. I like what these movies are. I like Andrew McLaughlin films in general. You know, we talked about him for folks when we discussed that one. And um, I think he did a really good take on that sort of old fashioned adventure epic. This one in particular, based on a true story about the Calcutta Light Horse, which was a unit that went to attack and disable a spy ship in Portugal. And I love the setup for this, where you see the German submarines that are just blowing merchant ships out of the water. And they've got some spy who has figured out the Brits completely, and they are flawlessly fucking with them. 
and they decide we got to figure out who this is. And it's this whole thing is about just blowing up one ship in Portugal. But it's really it's got tons of character. And how can you be upset when you see that your main group is you got David Niven, Gregory Peck and Roger Moore going on the adventure? What, what I like about these later era World War II movies, the Seawolves is, while based on actual events, is more or less just escapism, right? I mean, yeah, well, and I like that this is not we are fighting the Nazis because it's a moral imperative and we have to roll them back or the world will end. This is I'm bored and I'm tired of eating sandwiches and drinking tea. Please rescue me by taking me somewhere to blow some shit up. And I like that a lot. And I think Niven in particular really has a ball doing this. Overall, I dig it. I mean, I enjoy the cast and the setting. It's shot very nice. You're never going to see Peck more in Niven in the same movie. Plus, Trevor Howard, Patrick McNee, Wolf Kaler. I mean, there's a lot of interesting people in this movie. Like I said, it's a warm bath. I put this on the other night and I watched it and I was just comfortable the entire time. Like, oh, yeah, that's what I thought I was going to get, and that's exactly what I got, and I really enjoyed it for that. That's how I feel about Short Circuit 2. Speaking of sequels, Drew. Here we go. Dude, this is it. I I can't believe we're here. Oh, my God. It's Superman 2. Superman, where are you? Now, the adventure continues at the Eiffel Tower and on the moon and the romance continues this is the spectacular challenge Superman General, would you care to step outside? to a climactic super battle in the skies over Metropolis If you've only seen the first part, you haven't seen the best part. Superman 2. The adventure continues this June. This is one of the most talked about movies of our generation. It's also the wormiest can of worms. Yep. Superman 2 had a notoriously controversial production. The Salkinds, in a nutshell, were crooks. And they tried to get their actors to be in two movies for the price of one. They did this to the Musketeers people, and it was the same thing where they built a lot of the four Musketeers out of what they shot as the three Musketeers. So many years later, there was finally released a what was called the Richard Donner cut of Superman 2 because a good portion of Superman 2 was actually directed by Richard Lester who many, most people will remember from the brilliant A Hard Day's Night, uh, but by this point, not such a great director. And definitely not a good fit, in my opinion, for an Americana like what goes on in Superman 2. Half of it is very much a cousin to Superman, and half of it is like hayseed comedy. And so the Richard Donner cut was released 10, 12 years ago. About that. It is a great curiosity if you love Superman 2 and you've always been curious. I definitely recommend digging up that DVD and checking out the Donner cut. Having said that, we're here to talk about the true Superman 2. Like I said, the wormiest can of worms of all time, because the moment you start talking about the Donner cut, that's another hour and a half long conversation. And my opinion on it is it's not a movie. It's a really interesting bonus feature built out of a bunch of Frankenstein parts, but it's not a fucking movie, folks. Whatever it is, it's not a real movie. This Superman 2 that is the film. You know, talking about the Richard Donner Superman films in general is tricky business because these are sacred territory for a whole generation. And when you talk about nostalgia, this is a film that matters to people in a very personal, very major way. 
and they will not have any conversation about these films that is anything less than reverent. So you, if you're one of those people, let me just tell you, I love you. I love that you love Superman that way. Fast forward, because I don't have the same nostalgia that is blinding. I think both of these movies had pretty profound issues the first time around. Okay, first off, we never got into Superman because it came out in 1978, but it is, to me, in many ways, almost a perfect movie. Superman 2, when you were 12, which one did you think was better? Uh, there was no argument. It was Superman 2. Exactly. And if you and I had had this conversation when we were 14, there's no way you would have convinced us that Superman is better than Super Superman 2 has more action, more villains, more comedy. Yeah, it's so much better. But it's but here's the thing. I know Superman fans who the first film drives them crazy because Lex Luthor's a goofball and because Otis literally has a fat guy theme song. Boom. There's a, yeah, but there's a certain faction of every fandom who's not gonna who's gonna have a problem. I can see that point. If if you look at the first film and you are not down for a comedy version, in the first film, the threat it gets very real for a few moments, but for the most part is played very light and very funny, and that's just what it is. That's what Superman is. It's genius on Richard Donner's part because Richard Donner understood that he had to get people over the hurdle of just buying the live action thing. And so I think he made the whole thing so charming that you just sit in the first Superman and you're just having a good time watching people. And you have the added bonus of they found actually Superman. The real Superman happened to be a human being and they no cast matter him. what you want to say about Superman or Superman 2 or even the two wretched other sequels that we'll get to later. You cannot, in my company, criticize the, the performance and the class of Christopher Reeve, because I will beat you. That's the one thing that's unquestionable, is they found Superman, and he was 100% perfect, and nobody who watched that movie walked out going, well, they found the wrong guy, clearly. I mean, it was just instant. It was a cultural acceptance of him. Yes, you're Superman. We're all on board. And I think the first film even contains one of the best sequel setups of all time by setting up the Phantom Zone, because you know exactly what the sequel has to be at the end of the movie. And it's great. And it's it's a really good promise that, you know, you really hope that they were going to deliver on. And what's funny, Drew, bringing that up is that, you know, the superhero movies that we get today are so uh, intent on making sure they plant seeds for the future movies. Look at how artfully Superman did it. You give you a little tease in the beginning. And then they give you a very fun movie. And then on your way home, you go, oh, what about those three villains from the beginning? You will bow down before me, Jor-El. I swear it. No matter that it takes an eternity. You will bow down before me. Both you. And then one day, your ass. If they make another one, I guess it'll be about them. If you want to just talk about quote unquote fan service, that's all you need to do. <laughs> one of the things that drove me absolutely bug shit when this summer happened was this movie came out everywhere else first. It had been out in England for a year. So we would hear about it and I would read about it in Starlog and people were talking about it. There were reports that it was people were losing their minds. and It was great. I can't even imagine a studio doing that now. So when it finally hit day one front and center, couldn't contain myself. And yeah, I loved every second of it when I saw it originally. I would honestly say they are pretty much on par as films. I think one and two stand side by side. I think they each have their strengths. I think they each have their weaknesses. What I like about Superman 2 so much 
is I like that he is tested. Whereas now we do that in every movie. Every movie has the superhero be broken down to zero and then built back up. It was kind of amazing to see as a kid this icon that we just met broken and forced to be human. Even as a kid, I remember thinking, why are the cops so stupid? Why is everyone so dumb in this town? And like most of that stuff where the characters just all act like idiots, that's a lot of that stuff was the Richard Lester stuff. But the real arc of the film is him being willing to give up his powers for love and then being forced to go back and ask for forgiveness and ask for his powers back and having him be humiliated and get punched by a bully. All of that stuff resonated and still does. You're way more dismissive of the Richard Lester stuff than I am. I recognize they're two totally different movies that are playing side by side. Having said that, there's stuff in the Richard Lester that I've always loved and that I still, when it cuts back to it, I love the weird relationship between the cop and his son-in-law, I think. Oh, man. When they open and he's like talking about what he wants to eat at the diner. They have a wide selection, Dwayne. come on. They have a wide selection. All right. All right. (laughs) All right, day writer on Superman 2. Thanks for that. I would put Superman 1 and 2. If you love Superman the movie, watch Superman 2. And then you would say, Scott, should I watch Superman 3? And I would smack the remote out of your hand like it was made out of snakes. Oh, I can't wait for 1983. The thing about this, I look at the action now. It's so slow motion. And they are so unable to really unleash Superman or the Phantom Zone villains. They are not able to really go at each other. Part of the reason that I took so much shit over Man of Steel and part of the reason that I loved Man of Steel's as unreservedly as I did and still do is because we had never truly seen Superman against a foe of his strength on screen. It's what I wanted as a kid. And Superman 2 felt to me like I got it. I walked out of the theater satisfied. I was like, yay, he threw him into the Coca-Cola sign. Yay. I mean, anybody of our age or somebody of your son's age in 1981, That was Captain America Civil War airport battle. That's what that was in 1981. One of the metrics that I judged movies by is how much they became part of the vernacular of my friends and I, like how much the movies kind of crept into what we talked about and how we talked about things. And I had a friend, Brad, who every single day I would work with him at some point would turn to me and with true horror and sadness on his face say, why do you say this to me? When you know I will kill you for it. (laughs) Zod in this movie to me is terrific in this film. Terrence Stamp is so good as Zod in every scene. His scenes with Hackman. Hackman's scenes with Zod. Hackman is delighted to have Terrence Stamp to play off of. And you can see how clearly Hackman knows. I've got this perfect foil here. There's nothing I can do that's too big because he'll always. And I love Hackman buzzing around him like a little fly in the movie and driving him a little crazy with his mouth. They are so funny together. And yet you still think Zod's a threat. There's still a sense that he's genuinely dangerous. Take my hand and swear eternal loyalty to Zod. It's a tricky balancing act. And I think that is where Donner is is at his very, very best. Drew, before we move on to the next movie, I got to ask you this, though. What the hell is with the giant saran wrap S he pulls off his frickin chest? This is that thing that the Superman movies did where they would just invent powers when they needed them. 
the vast majority of the country did not read Superman comics obsessively by any means. And so it had no idea what his limitations were. Infamously, in these meetings on these movies, if there was a problem to be solved, they would just have Superman have a power that dealt with it. You know, if, if he'd had to fight sharks, I'm sure he would have had some kind of magic shark fighting power that would have just manifested it. Speaking of super, we now move on from a modern rendition of superhero to an ancient panoply of superheroes, if you will. This is Scott Weinberg, King of the Segway. MGM presents Clash of the Titans. Join the warrior Perseus on his odyssey through a magical world of wonders. Meet Andromeda, the princess he loves. Pegasus, his magnificent winged stallion. Upo, the mechanical owl. The evil Calabos. Medusa, the Stygian witches. And the most terrifying monster of all. Clash of the Titans. Rated PG. And this is a Harryhausen movie through and through. It was like his one last hurrah. So much beautiful stop motion effects. It, it, it pretty much eradicates the, the film's other shortcomings. That's how much I love the spectacle of this movie. But that's the thing. It's very telling that there are no other effects artists whose names eclipse everyone else involved in the films that they made. If you ask film nerds who directed Clash of the Titans, how many do you think would say Desmond Davis? And if you ask them who wrote it, how many would come up with Beverly Cross? Like, I mean, Beverly Cross wrote a ton of these movies and was very accomplished at it. But it's Harryhausen that people think of, period. And for good reason. Every Harryhausen scene in this film, magic, absolute magic. Every other scene, less so. The best Harryhausen movies, obviously, like uh, Jason and the Argonauts. Uh, you know, are an ongoing quest. And this is a lot of that. He has to go round stuff up in order to fight the Kraken at the end. There's that. It's a very familiar shape for these movies. Uh, As a kid, I didn't think that the in-between stuff was all that dull. And then as an adult, I thought, oh, it's just fun to see these actors that I now I know who they are. I believe that when the remake came out, I think it turned a lot of younger moviegoers onto this movie. And, and I honestly believe that it's, cult status will re- will go on. I don't think Harryhausen's going anywhere. I think Harryhausen's reputation is rock solid, and I think this Warner Brothers always treats this very, very well on Blu-ray. This is clearly a crown gem to them. They think very highly of it, and they've always treated it well. I ultimately think of Harryhausen films as one big body of work, and he is the through line, and all of them are united by that magic that he brings to life. And it's not just that it's stop motion. When you see Medusa in this movie, it's a performance. Medusa is alive and she thinks and she behaves and there's all this little stuff and there's little performance ticks that he'll drop in that make these creatures live. And that to me are the genius of who he was. He was acting through them and it's all him. His heart is in every one of these things. A talented stop motion animator. But they won't always be able to get the personality the way the, a dinosaur cocks its eyebrow or the way the monkey pounds on the ground when he's angry or the way the giant statue looks down and, and his neck creaks, you know, like all these tiny little details that you wouldn't get without Harryhausen's eye for human nature and eye for character. And he brought a real human touch to that stuff. All of the characters in Clash of the Titans are, of course, based on ancient mythology, uh, except for one, Bubo, the golden owl who was invented for the film uh, because the producers wanted some kind of a uh, cute robot type toy. Well, that can't be true. I'm, I'm fairly sure I have several books of Bubo fiction that dates back to the beginning of civilization. That can't be right. You need to check your sources there. I had Clash of Titans lunchbox 
and I had Clash of the Titans action figures, and Clash of the Titans might be the first movie ever to have bare breasts in it and spawn action figures. When that scene came up, the first time I showed Toshi Clash of the Titans, he was about five and a half, six. And I forgot, honestly, that the beginning of this movie has some straight up nudity. Boom, there it is. And it was a real lesson for me as a parent because I didn't react. It happened and I'm like, okay, don't do anything. Just see what he does. And Toshi just watched it. Nothing. It meant nothing to him. And I think it's funny that a lot of times when kids remember something, they don't remember their own reaction. They remember your reaction. Parents so frequently, they telegraph stuff to kids. And uh, that was for me. That was a real lesson in. All right. Let him react. You, you don't don't you do it. Harry Housen aside, how do you think Clash of the Titans stands as just a, an epic adventure movie? Eh, it's okay. I think it's very episodic. I think that's what Beverly Cross's scripts were. It was that series of, all right, so here we go. And then you just kind of plottingly do it. And I don't think there's much that's clever about the structure of the film. I don't think it really pays off in terms of any big emotional investment. But it does what it does pretty well. I like most of the stops along the way. I think the Medusa sequence is an all-timer. It's one of the great, great fantasy sequences. The, the witches, the Stygian witches always freaked me out when I was a kid. Stygian witches are great. I like. I enjoy Clash of the Titans. I know people who adore it beyond all proportion. I would never run it down. It's just that I, I started to see the way the blocks worked and how only Harryhausen is the glue for that filmography. I mean, it's hard. To, it's impossible to separate the two. But if you were to say, hey, Scott, if these movies just had decent, passable special effects, would you love it as much as you do now? And the answer is probably no. I'd give it a pass, but I wouldn't spend 12 minutes talking about it either. <laughs> so far this month, we've covered horror, fantasy, and adventure. But Drew, where's all the comedy? Oh, I'm so excited. Now, do you know how lucky we are that there is not a franchise based on this movie with like 11 terrible sequels? And do you know how close this came to being a Cheech and Chong film? What kind of man wears stripes? Got something in a low-rise bikini? A real man who can fight his way out of anything. A leader of men. A follower of women. You can't go! A tough guy with a soft heart. And an even softer head. I just wish I hadn't drunk all that cough syrup. Bill Murray in Stripes. Rated R. Starts Friday at a theater near you. Stripes was like forbidden fruit as a kid. Because it, it had everything that I wasn't supposed to. It, had, it was vulgar. It was about irresponsible guys who did shitty things. And guys looking in windows at naked women. And they're... It is like the army should not be acting like this. You know, this movie has a reputation and there's several films that are like this, but it has a reputation as being a film with a good first half and a bad second half. Exactly my what I was going to say. I don't know if I think that's really the case. I think it's definitely two movies here. That's the issue. It is a it is two hour long movies back to back. Structurally, yeah, it is lacking in that regard. But if those two hours are really funny, who cares? I don't know that I think that anymore. I, I know you reviewed at one point the extended director's cut. Like, I've, I've watched everything about Stripes that you can watch. I didn't realize until late in the game that it was originally pitched and written as a Cheech and Chong movie, that that's what Ivan, Ivan Reitman sold was Cheech and Chong joined the army. And so that's what they were developing. And then when they dropped out, it was Reitman who suggested Ramis and Murray. It's one of those strokes of genius where I think of Reitman as more of a businessman than an artist. But when he is on his game or makes the right choice, he kills it. And this is one of those cases where that pairing, you know, Harold Ramis was not 
lead actor by any means, and really hadn't even played a much of a supporting role in much. He had done little bit parts. And so it's a real leap of faith. And I know that the reason he did it, he knew Bill Murray would do it with him. Kind of the straight man, but he's also kind of a dry, sarcastic, wise ass. He's a stealth weirdo. Harold Ramis, I think this is his funniest performance. He's great in Ghostbusters, but I think he's funnier in Stripes. I agree. John Winger, the Bill Murray character in this, is the, it's the Bill Murrayest of all the Bill Murray roles. Tell me he was not one of your comedy heroes growing up. Not just Bill Murray, but John Winger. Of course. And he's the proto-Vinkman. He is perfecting that character. Now, here's where I think I can make the case for this being one film. And it's just that they didn't tell it right. But the movie is about how he goes from being at the absolute bottom of his life, the, the worst moment, rock bottom, and he sees that army commercial. And he decides at that point that he wants to go on adventures with beautiful chicks, his best buddy in machine guns, and have adventures. And that is ultimately, the movie is about him going on an adventure with beautiful chicks and his best buddy and machine guns on his very own super tank. Like, that is what the arc of the film is. But the problem is that the basic training stuff overpowers it comedically. That is the funniest section of the movie. I think it plays like a uh, gender-reverse Private Benjamin. I think in many ways, Private Benjamin is a much more intelligent movie. It has more to say. Let's flip it the other way. Instead of it being a rich, snooty guy, let's make it like one of these lovable loser ne'er-do-wells that the audience will cheer for. And does the army change him? No. He changes the army. Like, that's the joke. It it is the ultimate snobs versus slobs formula where, you know, the army is unchanging and you're going to bounce off of it. And you're right. He ultimately changes it. And I, I think that's one of the strangest parts of the movie is... The the scene, in specific, the graduation day when they come marching in, it's a very weird sequence as a joke, and it's weird that it works as well as it did. And here's the thing. Did you see this theatrically? This was an on-your-feet showstopper in theaters. Razzle, dazzle! One, two, three, four! People lost their fucking minds when this happened. It was people applauded. I saw this four or five times. I went with friends. I went with friends, older brothers. We went back several times and were nuts for it. But that's what comedy audiences were like back then. There was a more rabid sort of live comedy experience that happened with with movies, whether it was Bill Murray or Chevy Chase or early Eddie Murphy. There was this feeling when you went to these things that it was this party that you went to that you were kind of part of. I saw this movie twice, and then I went to scout camp with a couple of my friends. And so there was a point midway through summer camp where we had to go and do a um, like a presentation as our troop. We had to do it in front of all the other troops. Every troop had to do a presentation that day. And we decided we were going to do the scene from Stripes. Keep in mind, I'd seen it twice. It was still in theaters. Nobody else in the thing had seen it. And I could certainly not quote it accurately by any means. The worst nightmare experience you can fathom when we tried to do it it went so badly and it ended with every other troop staring at us like we had walked out in shit in the middle of this floor it was crazy bad you needed to wait a year the following summer that would have been a smash hit i know and we would have known it but it's such a weird joke because it's not really a joke it's just they come out and they say things that are weird and they march it's uh okay but it's a great set piece it it doesn't make sense let's quickly run through some of this ensemble and think of how easily this could have been police academy if that's the way bill murray was wired like if he said 
I will do 15 of these films. And you kept that cast together. You had Bill Murray, Harold Ramis, Judge Reinhold, PJ Souls, Sean Young, John Candy, Conrad Dunn, John Larroquette. If you had those people for even three or four movies, I think pound for pound, that's one of the best comedy ensembles you could have put together. You know, it's hard to have something that's a vehicle and an ensemble at the same time. But that's what Police Academy was. It was Steve Gutenberg's character is the John Winger model that everybody stole for the rest of the 80s. So this movie, in many ways, is the template that then got stolen and transmogrified and turned into other franchises. If Ivan Reitman could have talked Bill Murray into putting a gun in his hands again, which was the reason... There's never been talk of a sequel. He said later on in life that it made him a little sick that there's a movie out there with him running around with a gun. Um, And you don't see that in basically anything else that he ever shot. But if he had been comfortable, I've got to imagine there's a pocket universe where like Rick Moranis was the co-star in Stripes for Operation Panty Raid and comedy nerds are like, well, that's the best in the series. You know that, right? And of course, this was uh, co-written by Harold Ramis. And uh, the team of Len Blum and Dan Goldberg, who would go on to be very, very prolific comedy writers. I think John Larroquette steals the film. Uh, my friends and I used to impersonate that bit where the truck is gone and he's gone, where the, f- where the fuck, f- where, where the fuck, where? We used to think that was the funniest thing and him with the, oh, drop the loofah. Like, if you were quoting that <laughs> stuff, if you were quoting that stuff at 13, and it wasn't just that it was dirty, it was that it was fun. Sean Young and PJ Souls, both great. The thing is a weird mess when you look at how it's cut. And I know that since you've seen the director's cut, you know that there's whole sequences that got moved and changed. And I got to think that the weird, crazy acid trip in the jungle sequence was a holdover from that Cheech and Chong draft. It doesn't feel like this movie at all. That's probably like 80% of the extended cut. I'm fascinated by the director's cut, and I don't think any of it worked. I think they made all the right choices in terms of the theatrical. It's a shambling kind of loosely structured thing, but it's got charm all the way through. And like I said, that that supporting cast, man, oh, my God, John Candy in this is wonderful. How strange is it that of all the goofiness in Stripes, Warren Oates was nominated. His performance is that good. There's a physical scene between him and Bill Murray where they go into the the bathroom and he takes the hat off and he's like, go ahead, take a poke at me. What's fascinating about it is it's the most malicious I've ever seen Bill Murray seem on screen where genuinely he's got a little size on him, but Bill never really plays that. He never really plays menacing or that kind of thing. And when he does, he does it very well. What's great here is that Warren Oates isn't having it. So even though Bill gets serious about it, but he deserves to be knocked down a couple of pegs because in another in an, with a different movie star at that point, they might have gone. No, 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 no. Whoa, 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 whoa. We're not going to have this moment where the sergeant puts me in a headlock. I like that moment for that reason. Let's move on from a comedy that we still adore from our childhood to one that we might have second thoughts about. To win the Cannonball Run, you've got to get from New York to California in less than 35 hours. By hook, I'll take care of this one. Or by crook. Burt Reynolds, Kara Fawcett, Roger Moore, Dom DeLuise, Dean Martin, and Sammy Davis Jr. We're looking good. Mel Tillis and Terry Bradshaw. Perfect. Everyone's a favorite, but you'll never guess who wins. Rated PG. Now playing at a selected theater near you. I had the novelization for this movie. For a Hal Needham movie. And I regret nothing. They they must have just had the film finished and shown it to him because... It's impossible to think this is a script. I want to dig that novelization up just so I can see what these people allegedly signed on for. The Cannonball Run is something that totally appeals to children because it is several large groups of people running somewhere. And that is fun. Picture 
three movie stars you love, and they're running to Vegas from Seattle. And three other movie stars you love, and they're going to Vegas from New York. And it is a big, giant race. There is so much potential fun in that that you're willing to overlook a lot of bad filmmaking. I almost feel like Hal Needham is one of those guys, if you bring him up, nine out of ten critics are going to roll their eyes and say, I'm not even going to, uh, we're not even going to start this because that uh, that's just junk. Within that, if you want to meet Hal Needham halfway and say, what is a Hal Needham movie and how well did he make them? He made a film pre-80s called Hooper, which is great. Smoking the Bandit 2 is a case of, okay, we've had a huge success. We're going to follow it up and it's really indulgent and junky and it's no good. See, that's the word. That's the problem, though, is Cannonball Run, even though I think we both still kind of like it, it is indulgent and clunky. Until you set it next to part two, because then you have the sliding scale. Part one is a model of efficiency by comparison, and at least has the notion of in order to compete in the race, they have to disguise their cars. And so they each have to find some gimmick or some reason to be on the road driving like maniacs. And the first part of the movie is just the teams kind of figuring out their gimmicks and getting them in place. And then the race happens and they each have to keep their gimmick up while they're going. And, you know, like watching the origin story of how Dom DeLuise and Burt Reynolds decide they're going to drive a ambulance. There's a lot of shoe leather to get to that idea and an unnecessary amount. They crash through a boat full of bikini models because Burt Reynolds isn't paying attention and drives too fast on the way to the hospital in the car, in the ambulance, realizes we should steal an ambulance and use that. So it's that kind of thing. This movie is ridiculous. The idea that you have Jimmy the Greek playing himself, you have Jackie Chan playing himself. I want you on a five star scale at the age of 14. What would you have given this movie? Probably a three. I would have given this movie four stars easily as a kid. Maybe more. It just depends on who's on screen at any given moment. Well, let's do this real quick. I want to do this with you. I'm going to run through the ensemble. And what I want to hear from you is funny or not funny. Ready? Okay. Burt Reynolds and Dom DeLuise. Funny. Roger Moore. Uh, Not funny. Wrong. Funny. Uh, Farrah Fawcett. Not funny. No, but they do try. Not funny, though. Dean Martin and Sammy Davis. Um, the living half of the team is funny. Okay. Jack Elam. I don't know. I can't answer that question. It's so disturbing as the creepy ass doctor. Yeah. Yeah, I I'm not sure. Adrian Barbeau. Mm, yeah, funny. Yeah, more just I'm happy she's in a jumpsuit. Terry Bradshaw. Not funny unless he's reacting to Mel Tillis. Jackie Chan. Yeah, funny. Not funny, but nice to see him. How did that happen? Because it's Golden Harvest. Golden Harvest co-produced this, and they co-produced it with the idea of overseas. He's the center of the poster. In America, he's not on the poster. But already giant business for them in Asia. If you're a car junkie, uh, or if the premise of this across-the-country race sounds fun, and you're willing to look past some really cringeworthy writing. (laughs) There's some terrible stuff in it. I still don't know if I'd recommend it. When Dom DeLuise shows up in the movie in the first scene... I am 99.9% sure that's where they stole the design for the Mario Brothers. Uh, uh, I'm I'm almost entirely sure. I think that you watch this and it's clear that Hal Needham's favorite thing ever is just Burt Reynolds and Dom DeLuise standing next to each other and laughing. Clearly, it's the thing that makes him happiest in the world. I'm fascinated by the way they drop stunts into sequences that don't need stunts, like when they land the plane on Main Street to go get ice cream. And it's this giant elaborate series. That's just Hal Needham as a stuntman going, I'm going to give my buddies a bunch of work. I'm going to have each one of them do like nine gags a day. And they are getting paid and they're getting drunk and they're having a great time. All right, we're going to do it. Cannibal Run is a BMIL. It's a bad movie I like. And if we've destroyed our credibility, just wait. Just wait 
until we get to Cannonball Run 2, because Cannonball Run 2 makes the Cannonball Run look like the original Italian job. Of course, what is the most famous thing about these movies, Scott? Captain Chaos? The bloopers. The horrible blooper reels that go on for... I thought that started with Smokey. Well, it started with Smokey and the Bandit. I would say that this is where it kicks in. This is where the infamous, these bleeds, those bleeds, there's a state episode they do an exact word-for-word reproduction of every single one of the bloopers from the Cannonball Run. Shut up! Because they're so fascinated by them, and I don't blame them. This is the pinnacle to me of what bloopers at the end of a movie were, where you almost felt like you sat through the movie, and the reward was, and now we're actually going to make you laugh for three solid minutes. Uh, The last five minutes of bloopers are much funnier than the 90 minutes that preceded it, so why don't you just throw the movie in the garbage and show me the B-roll? These bleeds? Those bleeds. <laughs> now, Drew, we go from an unexpected hit to a film that was projected to be a, a hit and kind of died. In the dark ages, fantasy was fact. Magic was a weapon. Love was a mystery. Adventure was everywhere. And heroes were needed. Because in the Dark Ages, dragons were real. Dragon Slayer, rated PG. You know, this is the one that broke my heart, man. It landed like a lead balloon for the boys. And I am so sad about it because I love Dragon Slayer. But it's a weird movie. And watching it through their filter, I get why it's not their cup of tea. It is structured strange. What I find most interesting about Matthew Robbins and Hal Barwood is that these guys were dead center for one of the most exciting eras of commercial filmmaking of all time. They were hooked up to everybody. They knew everyone. They worked with everyone. They were friendly with everyone. But I always, I've always thought of Matthew Robbins and Hal Barwood as being like those smart kids who sat near the back of class and make fun of everybody and somehow get amazing grades. They're kind of like the low-key Zemeckis Gale. And the problem is, I think that they are writing scripts almost for other writers. Like, there's something super clever about the way this film is built. I really like the way once all the pieces of the story drop into place and you realize why the old man did this and what this is supposed to be and how this works. I like that. I think it's really well done. But it is not paced even remotely like what we think of as modern adventure films. And considering what else was in theaters this month, I just don't think it's what people wanted that year. It's funny. The nostalgia goggles thing is usually like, oh, I loved Cannonball Run as a kid, and therefore I must still like at least like it now because I am in many ways the same person. No, Dragon Slayer didn't do much for me as a kid. I grew up in love with films like Labyrinth and Legend and especially The Sword and the Sorcerer. But even back then, Dragon Slayer just didn't do much for me. I didn't know if it. I thought it was a kid's movie or... I think Drew nailed it. It takes a little too long to get rolling, and it's not so much of an action movie. And it's the other problem is that they do that thing where Vermithrax is revealed gradually over the course of the movie. We never see a great shot of him until he really comes out to play. And until then, they hint at him and they they show a shadow or they show like a silhouette of him against the sky and they stay away from showing all of him until he really comes out and lays waste to the town in that first big set piece. that's about a little over halfway into the movie, like it's pretty far back. I love the fact that we have to wait for it. And then when we finally see him, he's amazing. Phil Tippett working at the very, very height of Phil Tippett's creative powers. It's a Great work from him. Do you hear the four people nominated for this movie, the, the, the effects team on this movie? 
Brian Johnson, Ken Ralston, Phil Tippett, and Dennis Murin. Jesus Christ, what a heavy hitters. That's like a Mount Rushmore. <laughs> so now this, like Popeye, this was a co-production between Disney and Paramount and was done because Disney really was trying to shatter the mold of what a Disney film was. They were fine with the violence, with the semi-nudity that happens in one scene. They were okay with that. Drew, you remember as well as I do that when, when this movie came up when we were kids, all people ever talked about was that very disturbing dinosaur baby dinosaur eating scene. There is some disturbing violence in this movie. Yeah, it's supposed to be. I mean, it's a dragon eating a woman. Yes, it's terrible. Yeah, but it's not just like gulp. It's like them like feasting on a body that's laying there. Again, more evocative than you think, more suggestive than you remember, but it's shocking at the time because you really hadn't seen that in a Disney film at all. And I like the world of this. I really like Peter McNichol. And I think Peter McNichol is clearly cast in the Mark Hamill mold here. He is the sort of nerdy, kind of weird, gawky. Everybody knows Peter McNichol from Ghostbusters 2 and Ally McBeal and dozens and dozens of movies. He's a great, great character actor. He's an unlikely lead for this kind of movie, and he's really good. I'm not I'm not as in love with Caitlin Clark, who is cut from that sort of Diana Manoff late 70s, early 80s mold. And she's fine, I guess. I don't for one second buy the she would have grown up and people would have thought she was a dude living in that village. And the moment she showed up, my boys were like, why do they keep saying that's a boy? That's a girl. It, they were way ahead of the movie's reveal, and it's something that because it doesn't really land. Well, I think it's admirable that Robbins and Barwood decided that they were going to, you know, this was an original screenplay. And, and it's tough to do like a Dungeons and Dragons type movie in this era without treading in somebody else's backyard. So, but it just seems kind of underwritten. It just seems like basic quest premise. I like the way they misdirect you completely about Ralph Richardson. I think that's a really clever piece of writing. He's the uh, the ostensible Obi-Wan in this movie, and he's fantastic. I think it's great that they let him fail as long as they do in the film. There's there's this sense of McNichol constantly trying things and, and really running against the limitations of who he is. And I think so often in these movies, things go well for the hero very quickly. And here, they really don't. And I, I like the fact that he has to work for it before he finally gets what he's trying to do figured out. And I think that's what I mean is sometimes I think they outsmart themselves by being clever as opposed to connecting. Robbins and Barwood did some more interesting work throughout the 80s. They did a very obscure horror movie called Warning Sign, which I kind of like. They wrote Batteries Not Included for Spielberg. Uh, Matthew Robbins co-wrote Mimic. And since then, for for Guillermo, he's written Don't Be Afraid of the Dark and Crimson Peak. Yeah, and they co-wrote stuff that hasn't been made. Like they have a they the two of them together wrote an adaptation of Crown of Monte Cristo that is holy shit. And they are just in general, uh, I think, really interesting collaborative partners. Guillermo will tell you at the drop of a hat that Vermithrax is one of his favorite movie monsters of all time. And one of the greatest designs anyone has ever brought to life in film. Whether Whatever you think of the film. If you like it, hate it, whatever. There's no denying that the coolest practical effect dragon you'll ever see. Now, generally when we say something is episodic, that's not necessarily a compliment. But in the case of our next film, not only is it fitting, but it really helps. How is that for an intro, Drew? I'm getting good at that. From the naked dawn of man to the magnificence of the Bible. The Lord Jehovah! has given unto you these 15, 10, 10 commandments. From the glory that was Rome, uh, to the dark evils of the Spanish Inquisition. For now begins 
The Inquisition. The Inquisition. What a show. We know you're wishing that we go away. But the Inquisition's here and it's here to stay. Mel Brooks, History of the World, Part 1. Ten million years in the making. It's good to be the king. Yeah, not my favorite Mel Brooks film, but certainly not bottom tier. This is kind of that amiable, likable, middle range Mel Brooks. I put this, I for me, this is right next to High Anxiety, which is another film I like a lot, but that I don't totally adore. Yeah, no, to, to me, there's two uh, tiers of Mel Brooks films. There's like the producers, Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein. And then there's everything else, which I either like or love. Oh, I, I'm, I think there's a third tier that I can't really revisit ever. I, I can't go with you that everything is worthwhile. I think most of his broad parodies have at least some, some charm to them. And History of the World, I was taken aback by when I revisited this one by exactly how vulgar it is. I mean, it's almost definitely his most vulgar movie, even more than Blazing Saddles, right? Uh, I don't know. I think Blazing Saddles is more bracing in a lot of ways, and it, it really Blazing Saddles confronts you when it uses language. This one's just kind of kind of just kind of smarmy and goofy and and a little dirty. Do you think he looked at like Life of Brian and said, Not "Really, I think Life of Brian is working on a very different plane than this." Life of Brian is about the notion of why we follow people and how uh, uh, human organizations get started and how people turn an action into uh, religion. And uh, Life of Brian has 50 things on its mind. This is big, broad shots across the bow that are very easy. You know, the Spanish Inquisition is a musical number. That is literally the joke. The fact that he is using like really broad and vulgar and musical parody, it really feels to me like he's, this is his take on a Monty Python type movie. I just think they're working in different kinds of comedy. This is this is a comedy where they try to figure out if somebody's a eunuch by trying to get his feather to rise or where Harvey Corman gets upset because they keep calling him Count to Money. Python's playing a different game than this. Uh, what what do you think is the, uh, the the strong segment in this movie? The Spanish Inquisition bit is funny. I, I think the Spanish Inquisition might be the best staged of them. I think that the uh, the two big set pieces, the, uh, the, the Roman Empire and the... Um, French Revolution, they're both really long, and I think they are both not as clever as they think they are. I think they both have have some good stuff in them. Uh, I think they also both take a lot of really cheap, easy shots. You know, the opening, the Stone Age, is a jerk-off joke, essentially, because it's that kind of more slapsticky dinner theater kind of humor it doesn't stick to me the way his great films do. I, I guess because Mel Brooks is such a great writer when it comes to features, it almost seems like this was just like, I don't want to say lazy, but maybe like an easier gig for him. There aren't many, you know, comedy anthologies like there are horror anthologies, but they're, they all kind of follow the same rule. You know, it's like, it's just a question of numbers. An anthology is, you know, if more of the segments are good than are bad, then it's okay. It's a mixed bag, um, but it's a mixed bag written by Mel Brooks. So while it's certainly not among his best material, I, I would posit that Mel Brooks's B material is better than a lot of writer com comedy writers' A material. What can you give me from History of the World Part 1 that is as good as Set a Give or I Was Gonna Make Espresso? Like, It's Good to Be the King? Hey, Piss Boy? Yeah, I think those are those are probably the best known bits that or the trailer for History of the World Part Two. There is something very fun and clever about making a trailer for a film you're never, ever going to do. You know, I think Jews in Space was one of the biggest laughs in the film. And it's 
basic visual gag. The other reason that I have trouble being too hard on it is I think we see so much of what Mel Brooks loves in this movie. And there is a sense that it's just Mel Brooks throwing a party, having all his favorite people in, having them do the kind of thing that they do so well. Enough of it lands that I do remember, again, seeing this in the theater, big, giant reactions. People really had it was a party when you went to these things. And this was a great example of that. I think it's great that we're talking about uh, sort of uh, lower tier films from people that we love and adore, uh, because I think this next film is an interesting entry into the overall filmography of Cheech and Chong. Columbia Pictures presents Cheech and Chong together again in Nice Dreams. We got 17 million dollars, man. The story of two guys who are into physical fitness. Fine dining. Oh, How about sweet? And anything else they can get their hands on. Cheech and Chong's Nice Dreams, rated R. Now playing at a theater near you. This movie's terrible. Terrible. Unwatchable. Wow, I completely disagree with you. I don't think that's true at all. I think when you're talking about a filmography that includes shit like the Corsican Brothers and Yellowbeard and some of the stuff that they did later on. It's just belabored. It really honestly feels like between their albums and their first two movies, I mean, they're likable guys. I, you know, Obviously, I have no problem with marijuana. I have no problem with Cheech and Chong. But it honestly, I hate to say such a pedestrian criticism, but it literally feels like they looked in their bag of jokes and went, we don't have anything left. Oh, man, I dis- I disagree with you. I like the energy of these movies. And I- Chong in particular fascinates me. I like watching him in a scene, even if he's not the focus of it. Actually, especially if he's not the focus of it. There's a scene in this movie where they're having breakfast. And they're talking to some guy and the- they're at the house. And Cheech is the one that's cooking. And he is the comic focus of the scene. There's a guy in the foreground telling a story. And all Chong is doing is watching him roll and smoke an entire joint by himself. They make me laugh. There is something about the energy of these guys and what they're doing in scenes that makes me laugh through and through. More than that, I think that what these films do well and what I think they they contribute in terms of unique comic voice is the only way to get into this, the only way to actually talk about this is to admit that I, I'm a pot smoker and have been on and off for the last 30 years. What? Well, you know what, Scott? I don't write about it a lot and I don't talk about it a lot. It's not something that I advertise. I'm a parent, for God's sake. But it's one of those things that, you know, it absolutely informs the way I come to these films. And when I moved to L.A. in the early 90s and was looking for pot and stepping into pot culture in Los Angeles, one of the things this movie gets perfectly right is that feeling of the weird, long, shaggy nights of chasing a connection around Los Angeles and how weird the people are that you end up meeting because you're just trying to get some weed. Okay, maybe that's not universally relatable. Maybe that's not for everybody, but they get it right. They get right the way that world feels and how weird people are and the way the random occurrences they get that happen. Right. What's this movie about, Drew? What's the plot? Well, the movie is about two guys who are running a business where they're selling pot out of an old ice cream truck, and they basically... The pot that they're getting is being grown under the pool of their house that they've covered with a tarp. There's a dude who's living down there and growing this weed for them who doesn't realize they're selling it. He's just growing it as a science nerd. And they're taking it out the back door and they're selling it. And they've made enough money that they're ready to retire. The cops come in, raid the place. They go out the front door with the money and they spend a long evening accidentally losing that money and then having to chase it down because they've given it to somebody who's entirely untrustworthy. That's what the film is about. That's fine. The first two Cheech and Chong movies were not exactly uh, plot-oriented. 
it's just like they came up with this simple premise and it's like now let's just shoot this in sequence and see what hilarity ensues and unlike in Up in Smoke where people like where supporting characters really pop out here it's just belabored it doesn't feel funny nobody really stands out to me oh my god I love the scene where Donna takes them home and she's gonna have the three way with them and then Cheech goes out to get some ice and the giant racist biker shows up there are so many jokes in that that I like. The line that kills me every single time is when he finally shows up and the guy is passed out in the bed and Chaw comes to the door and he's like, there's a monster in here, man. I love that stuff. I love the I love the scene where Cheech is in the in, insane asylum and he can't scratch his own balls because he's in a straitjacket. Is it highbrow? No. Is it funny? Yes. No, it's not because he's not that kind of comedian. It's not funny. Dude, I love Paul Rubens in this movie. I'll tell you who I don't like in this movie. I don't like Michael Winslow in this movie. And I think I am now brave enough to finally say I have never liked Michael Winslow. I dislike every Michael Winslow appearance in film. And it's one fucking joke. And that's it. And he did it seven times before the movie that made him famous doing it. I go insane every time he shows up in a film. I can't take it. And this film stops the movie for like five minutes of Michael Winslow. It's awful. An epic hot take. Drew does not like Michael Winslow. Unbelievable. I do like the Timothy Leary scene quite a bit, and I think there's something insane about Timothy Leary running around in an asylum handing out acid to people. I honestly think that like this seems to be the movie where they realize that it doesn't have to be good for it to make money. And that's like the beginning of the end for them. I think this is the last movie they made where it feels like the actual energy of Cheech and Chong. These first three films, I think, stand separately from everything else they did. I don't think there's a film after this that's worthwhile that they starred in that was made as a Cheech and Chong vehicle. Not one. But this is, I think, a good one. I think that the only thing we can do now is end the podcast forever. If we disagree this strongly about Cheech and Chong Part 3, I, I just don't know if we can work together anymore, Drew. It's just too much to handle. I would flip this desk, except I've got my computers on it, so you're very lucky. But I was going to flip it. What? Flip you. Flip you for real. Yeah, I'm shaking. From then, we move to what I think is a terrible, terrible Cheech and Chong comedy to a surprisingly entertaining Roger Moore Bond movie. I believe this is Roger Moore's third. No, he doesn't live and let die, man, with the golden gun. Uh, Spy who loved me. Um, then Moonraker. So this is fifth, I think, for him. Pretty important moment, too, because I think they, I think Spy Who Loved Me was great. I think the ones before that are pretty cheesy, but good. And I think they kind of got the balance of the cheese and class right in Spy Who Loved Me. And then they made Moonraker, which is by far my least favorite James Bond movie. Moonraker is so bad. I want to punch somebody. And, but then you'll get people who go, oh, there's no way it's worse than, you know, uh, Tomorrow Never Dies or whatever. It's as bad as View to a Kill. It's terrible. Part of the problem was Spy Who Loved Me has this fairly grounded take on things. They have the underwater car and stuff, but it's still somewhat grounded. But so this was they really tried to strip everything down. And here's where I think this is kind of a, a singular standalone moment for them. It's the only James Bond movie where I can make the, the case he's not the main character and it's better for it. 
It's also, isn't this also the one in which an infamous character, infamous villain is finally offed? Sort of. They couldn't really call him that character, and they had to be very careful about it because they didn't legally have the right to use him anymore. So that's one of the reasons they drop him down a fucking pipe at the beginning the of the movie. Smokestack. Yeah. Yeah. But the uh, for me, I think, honestly, the film is really about Melina and her trying to get revenge over the death of her parents. And it's this revenge story where a James Bond movie runs into it. And I love that the James Bond movie kind of lands on it and then takes over. But it remains a fairly stripped down real world James Bond movie. It was also, unfortunately, the film where I realized that Roger Moore runs like he has a broomstick broke off halfway up his asshole. Like he is he runs painfully. I think I'm a better runner than James Bond, and I would never run in front of a camera for any money ever. It's a what is it? He has to get back a, a video, a microfilm. The ATAC system. It's for military submarines. It makes them run. He has to prevent something from falling into the, in a, a villainous hands, and then he comes across this woman who's on her own revenge plot, and their their you know their threads tie up. And uh, the woman who plays Molina, Carol Bouquet, I don't know much about her. She's great. Lynn Holly Johnson, on the other hand, is a Bond woman in this film who I do know, and she is stunning. Uh, Character actor-wise in this one, you get Julian Glover and Topol. Not the most electric cast for a James Bond movie, but, I mean, like, View to a Kill had a much bigger cast and is a much weaker movie. Kind of seems like this was maybe maybe a less is more James Bond entry this year. They knew that they had gone too far with Moonraker. There's a real sense here of them backing off and trying to get it back to he's a spy. He does spy things. It's fairly real world. Um, I think John Glenn jumping from editor to director in the series because he ended up then directing the next batch of movies. And that's another part of the Bond thing that I always find interesting is that the directors that came from other parts or the directors that did it over and over and how those guys each kind of signed the series. And then you would see them each try their hand at this kind of Bond movie or this kind of Bond movie. And you definitely had a sense of continuity of ownership. As weird as this franchise is and as up and down as the quality is from film to film, Bond movies remain interesting to Bond fans because of those differences. I like what this movie represents about the Bond character and how it fits into that filmography. Yeah, it's got some class to it. Overall, I I would call this one of Roger Moore's better Bonds. And it is interesting that in the same month, you could have gone to see the Cannibal Run, in which he mocks the James Bond character, and then immediately follow that with the James Bond movie. And if you watch the other Dom DeLuise movie, on the other side of that, you'd have a really weird afternoon where things started to overlap and melt together, and you'd walk away with one big, strange movie in your head. Speaking of strange... The second feature from our beloved childhood friends. Ta-da! Announcing the great Muppet Caper. It's a new Muppet movie. They're back. Well, welcome home. Checking in. Stepping out. And falling <clears throat> into forbidden love. Oh, excuse me. The all-new musical mystery movie, The Great Muppet Caper. Starring everybody. Rated G. Starts Friday. Consult Friday's newspapers for theaters and showtimes. I don't think I've ever seen a more direct call and response from a filmmaker. In the Muppet movie, there's a scene where Kermit the Frog rode a bike. And it was a big deal when it happened. If you weren't there, you don't remember the mania. Like, people went nuts and thinking, the puppet rode a bike! Ah! Like, lost their minds. So I love that in this film, the response is Jim Henson goes, oh yeah, you like that? Puppets riding bikes? Fuck you, I got 50 puppets riding bikes in one shot. It is like him daring Western civilization to end because of how amazing this shot is. I love that. I, there's something really hilarious to me about them standing around going, oh, we're going to show them puppets riding bikes, goddammit. The Muppets are in London, and they are trying to track down 
the jewel thieves, and it's basically all you need to know. The, the Muppets are on the case. The, the facets of a Muppet movie that have to stand out, of course the Muppets, and they are as good as ever in this. This is their second movie, the puppeteers and the, and the actors are as good as they've ever been. It just seems a little bit understated, a little bit quieter. I didn't love Great Muppet Caper as much as a kid. I think I might like it more now than I did when I was a kid. First movie directed by Jim Henson, this was his jump to the director's chair, and I think it's, it's a little shaggy. He's definitely still learning how to put it all together. Film during the last stretch of them in production on The Muppet Show, then released as The Muppet Show's ending worldwide. I think that's the biggest problem with the movie is they had overextended themselves and worked so hard. I also think one of the things that you can't downplay in terms of the first movie is how important Paul Williams' songs were. I was just, I knew you were going to say that. The music is not that great in this one. I love Joe Raposo. Don't get me wrong. His work on Sesame Street is sterling. His work for Pixar is really good. He's a really clever, charming gentleman. He's just not Paul Williams, and Paul Williams is one of the great pop songwriters of all time, and the Rainbow Connection might be one of the greatest pop songs ever written. So it's one of those accidents where you set the bar so high on the first film, and you had such an amazing soundtrack that the second time out, it's fine. It just doesn't jump off the screen the way the first one did. This is noteworthy for things like it introduced the rats. Charles Grodin is so miscast in this film. It's amazing. It is weird. I love Charles Grodin, but it is odd. Uh, uh, John Cleese is the standout among, I think, well, Diana Rigg and John Cleese. John Cleese are. is great. And John Cleese's entire sequence, from the moment he's introduced to the moment he leaves screen, I think is magical. And watching John Cleese and Muppets play together, oh my God, it's wonderful. And it's really funny. And yeah, great. I like Great Muppet Caper very much. I will say, when we get to Muppets Take Manhattan, I may weep. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a un, uh, unapologetic fan of the Muppets. I absolutely love them. The first time it happens, you know. Uh, so I think that wraps up the whole month, Drew. Yeah, that's it. There was no other movies released not that month. Nothing. Nothing no, released. No. Um, certainly not a all-time classic and one of the greatest adventure films of all time. For nearly 3,000 years, man has searched for the lost Ark of the Covenant. The Bible speaks of the Ark leveling mountains and laying waste to entire regions. Not something to be taken lightly. No one knows its secrets. Jones, do you realize what the Ark is? It's a transmitter. It's a radio for speaking to God. An army which carries the Ark before it is invincible. The Ark, it is their Atanis. And it is something that man was not meant to disturb. It is protected by forces beyond imagination. It is desired above all treasures on earth by those who are good, trust me, and those who are evil. I tell you everything. Yes, I know you will. Raiders of the Lost Ark. A film from Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. We could, if we wanted to, just say, this is without a doubt, one of the top five films ever made, probably the best adventure film ever made, one of the most entertaining movies you'll ever see, and if you haven't seen it in four or five years, you need to watch it again tonight. And we could end the show right there.
And if you are sitting there right now and you're thinking, I can't wait to go to the, the comment section on the side, I'm going to leave a comment where I say that Indiana Jones is essentially useless to the film, that if he hadn't participated in the movie, the, everything that happened in the movie still would have happened, and Indiana Jones doesn't really have any outcome in the movie. Fuck you. Don't do that. I hate that. I get it. There's a deconstructionist itch that kicked in in film nerds with the internet that makes me want to throttle them. Raiders of the Lost Ark is pound for pound, shot for shot, scene for scene. One of the finest examples of commercial filmmaking possible, not just yet, but possible. The screenplay for this film is such an astounding example of how to handle exposition, how to handle history, how to handle character backstory, how to keep everything moving at all times, how to up the stakes from scene to scene, how to within each sequence up the stakes so that each action sequence feels like a complete movie. The supporting cast in this movie is unbelievable. I could spend the rest of this podcast just talking about the work that is done by Paul Freeman as Bellic, who I consider one of the great screen villains because not really a villain. He's right when he says to Indiana Jones, I'm a few degrees away from you. I'm you, basically. And that is one of the reasons I find them so interesting is there's that scene where they're sitting opposite each other. And the only reason Bellic is the bad guy is because we're watching Indiana Jones's movie. It's they're They're really both grave robbers and i love that he is one of my favorite adventure characters and he is morally on shaky ground in almost every scene in this movie whether it's his interpersonal relationship with marion whether it's the way he treats historical landmarks whether it's the way he behaves in terms of his job indiana jones is not a moral compass but he is awesome that's the fun part is that he is consistently moral even though he when he doesn't seem it uh there's that great moment where he finds marion in belloc's tent and he has to leave her there in order to save her. And there's a, a great little writing moment of, does she trust him? Is, you know, of course he's going to come back, but like, what a horrible thing to do to her. You know, it's stuff like that where he is obviously the hero, but there are some shades of gray. What what did he do to Marion back in the day that makes her so mad? Why does he know all these shady characters so damn well? People relate to that guy who might have shades of gray, but when push comes to shove, does the right thing. There is an elegant amount of work done on characters in this first movie. I adore the work done by Denholm Elliott in this movie. Watching him in this film, there's that great line where he says to him, if I was a few years younger, I'd be with you. And you get the feeling that he used to be like Indy. He was a guy that could handle himself in the field that went out and he misses it. And there's a degree of sadness that he can't go back out in the field. Contrast that to Last Crusade, where we see Marcus bumbling around a train station like he's never been out of his hometown before, and he's an idiot, dangerously stupid, and has no idea what he's doing. Or watch the sequences in this movie with Sala as we meet his family and we see him with his crew. It is clear that Sala is a respected man, that he's a family man, that he's a good man. I like Sala in this movie. I like the the conversation that he has with Indiana Jones, where it's him and his wife and his family, and they're outside. There is a real sense that these people belong to a community. Watch Sala in Last Crusade, where he's the fat, greedy Arab, and that's it. It's frustrating to see how beautiful and elegant all the character work is in this movie, and then even just the same series two films later, it's like they forgot what they wrote. It's like they never watched the first film. Uh, as our villains, we have, uh, as you mentioned, Paul Freeman as Dr. Rene Belloc. We have Ronald Lacey as Major Tote. And we have Wolf Kaler as Colonel Dietrich. And I remember as a kid, 
I love the idea that they have three very distinct villains. I think Lucas was really entertained by the bureaucracy of evil. Like he loves it in Star Wars. He loves how power structure works and how people get upset about promotions and they get killed and somebody else steps in and takes their place. And he loves it with the Nazis in this movie, too. There is a real fascination with the way people are jockeying for who gets to kiss the boss's ass the most. Spielberg made great haunted houses for us as kids because that opening sequence is scary and bloody and weird and... That's what we loved. And as a kid, you talked about that opening sequence. You wanted to grab your friends and run back in just for that, if nothing else. Yeah. And when you have this guy who looks like the ultimate hero, and then in the next scene, he's a college professor. All of these exposition and character moments are now interesting because the character is interesting. If we just opened with him as a college professor lecturing the students, we'd get to like him eventually. There's no slow spots in this movie. The biggest problem with this movie being as perfect and as well-structured as it is, is like Road Warrior, this was imitated obsessively. There are so many insane, shitty carbon copies of Raiders of the Lost Ark and the Road Warrior out there that they almost created these subgenres that are just that movie rippling out through imitator after imitator after imitator after imitator. What did Spielberg Lucas do? They looked at the old serials that they loved as a kid and said, we want to make a great jungle adventure movie. Raiders of the Lost Ark is not original. It's an homage. Now, then people are like copying Raiders. The answer is no, don't copy Raiders. Copy something you loved as a kid because that's what they did. And they made a brilliant film. Well, see, and that's why I would argue that I, when I say that Mel Brooks's best work is Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein, it's because it's clear that Westerns and Frankenstein movies meant more to him than Bible epics or Star Wars. So you see which one of those his heart is 100% in because he's actually getting to make those movies. Young Frankenstein is an act of obsessive love. It is not an act of parody. It is, I adore you so much, I want to eat you and ingest you and be you. You know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, the imitations misunderstood so much about what worked. They imitate the structure and the shape and the attitudes of Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know what's hard? Characters we care about setting the camera in a creative place so that we're looking at something new and novel. Uh, adventure moments, escapes that we haven't seen before. We talked earlier about novelizations and about stuff that you learn from novelizations. There were some big ones. In oh, the Raiders of the Lost Ark yeah, including my favorite one. He lashed himself to the submarine periscope with his whip. Which is also in the comic adaptation. Yeah, one of the ones that I'm fascinated by, and I gotta say, whoever made this call to take this out, very good call. Because this would make the movie right now almost unwatchable. Indiana Jones was clearly sticking it to that student who had Love You written on her eyelids. There were sequences that were shot where she comes to his office to talk about the affair they're having. It was clearly a problem for Indy because he has the history with Mary and he has students that he's sleeping with. Indiana Jones had a bit of an issue. How likely would it be that to have this movie made today and the producer says, we never explained why Marion's mad at him? They talk around it as well as anybody ever could talk around anything in a movie to the point where people can still argue about what they think it was. Right. I think it was something just as simple as she fell madly in love with him. He thought it was a minor affair and he was insensitive dickhead. Yeah, I don't. No? No. You were a child. It was wrong. You knew it. No. Uh, uh-uh. I think and he crossed the line. I think he also loved her. I don't think there was any mistake. I think he loved her very much. And I, I think Marion Ravenwood is, if, I, if I'm being honest... One of my very favorite fictional characters, period. I think she might be the best character that Lucasfilm owns. Love Marion Ravenwood. I, I love, love that she has a superpower, and her superpower is drinking anyone on the planet under the table. 
Karen Allen should have been a giant star, and I truly don't get it. She is funny. I think she's great in drama. She's terrific. She is film for wait film. Wait until we she get to Starman. My... She makes me cry in Starman. Wait Man. until we get to shoot the moon. She's unbelievable. She's she's every bit as good as Harrison Ford in the movie. She's every bit as responsible for me loving Raiders of the Lost Ark as Harrison Ford is. I will also say, knowing this film was shot in under two months, on the run, for very little money compared to what they had worked with even up to this point, I look at this and I am humbled by the sheer, raw, animal talent in every choice Spielberg makes as a director. Yeah, we could talk for another 10 minutes about, ready? How about a name we haven't mentioned yet? How about John Williams? Okay, you cannot praise this movie without giving proper credit to Lawrence Kasdan, Philip Kaufman, and George Lucas. Uh, these are, you know, say what you will. Philip Kaufman and, and, and Lawrence Kasdan are two of the, my favorite screenwriters ever. There's a terrific J.W. Rensler book, if you love indie, that will take you through the entire development, including whole story conferences, where you'll see how they talk through each of the points of the movie and who brought what to the table. And you realize it's collaborative. It's really collaborative. I think Lucas had a ton of it that he walked in with. Lucas certainly is, I think, the main engine underneath Indiana Jones. But then I think on top of it, every single person who was contributing as a writer really contributed. And the end result is because all those guys are fighting for ideas in this thing and they're fighting to make these characters great and they realized at a certain point, I think all of them realized at a certain point, we have a sports car here. This thing is unbelievable. And like having Indy be a little bit inept and a little bit self-deprecating, like when his legs wobble, when he gets punched by the giant German, little things like that. Normal hero wouldn't have his legs wobble when he gets punched in the jaw, but you know, he's not a superhuman. He might be kind of in later films if nothing else Raiders of the Lost Ark is responsible for the single greatest punch sound effect in movie history I think we also need to show throw some love to the brilliant cinematographer Doug Slocum Dougie Slocum's work in this movie is next level genius light and color are remarkable in this movie the scene where he goes down and into the map room and the light comes through is one of the finest examples of not just how you light a set but then how score can take something and goose it right up into a different level john williams's music there as it swells and raises is religious uh, it's so editor, big. editor michael Kahn, who works with spielberg constantly and there's a reason those two breathe each other's they get it. They are bound in some profound way. At so, point. like, I don't, like, I am not the kind of person who could just rattle off production and designer names and know tons of names. <laughs> These people are so giant that we know even their names. Like Deborah Noodleman, costume designer. Uh, Les Dilly, art direction, who would go on to become one of the most celebrated art directors in the world. I, I think we need to just end this right now because we could literally just go on and on and on about Raiders, and we're supposed to be articulate professional film critics, not 12-year-old fanboys talking to our moms about how we just got out of the movie, and oh my god, mom, there was this giant ball, and then he jumps out, and then all these guys chase him, and then the and then the, the plane, and there's a snake, the snake, he says, oh, mom, I hate snakes, and then he goes to college, and then he gets on a plane, and the plane goes bow, 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 across the map. Oh. If there's any film that perfectly folds time and space between being a child who is in love with movies in general, and being a critic who can defend them based on technical acumen, Raiders of the Lost Ark, it works for everyone, and it is perfect. 
I can't believe that we are wrapping up the month. I mean, my God, Scott, the landscape of this month. And I saw these all in the theater. The fact that I went movie to movie and... I'm sorry, Drew, but I think this might be the best month we've covered yet. Next month, guys, we've got Blake Edwards doing one of his strangest and most personal films. We've got Albert Finney fighting werewolves, sort of. We've got punk rock and Pele playing soccer in World War II. And we've got the best Brian De Palma movie. And we've got John Carpenter icons and drunk British people and Disney cartoons. It's unbelievable. And we'll be back here in two weeks to go over all of it. Thanks, guys. As always. <laughs>